0: Welcome back to another episode of Bad Letter. I'm your host, Christian Ashleman, and this is the podcast where we chat a little bit about our psychohuman brains, a little about our loony human behavior, and a lot about how all of that fits together. So today we are on episode 32. Thank you so much to those who've been out there following along, tagging along with all the episodes as they've been coming out on every Tuesday morning and Friday morning. I really appreciate all of you for taking the time to listen. Uh, it really does mean a lot to me. If you know someone who uh would be interested in bed letters interested in this kind of stuff psychology themed things um you know research and and the like uh be sure to share the podcast uh, I really 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 appreciate those those shares so if you uh, and if you're interested in more of my work, feel free to head to cashloman.com. That's c a s h l i m a n dot com. You can also find a link there on the Bed Letter page at the bottom to join the Bed Letter community Discord server. But on that website is where I post my writing to my blog, different poetry, different links to every episode of Bed Letter. Um, there's a place there for you to comment on on what you think about episodes. Uh, there's more info. On that website for the editing, tutoring, and mentoring services that I offer. and then tied with that, I also have a Patreon page that offers very special you know discord access and a monthly newsletter and a whole bunch of other things. So if you want to keep up to date, be sure to follow me um, on social media it's just at C Ashleman. All right, so the topic for today is pretty interesting actually. It's sort of meta macro level, um, research about research, I guess (laughs) it's kind of an interesting, um, topic that I found when I was digging around in a totally separate article that was compiling a lot of different, um, uh, big, big things that are happening in the psych, psych industry and, and just in other industries um, over the last you know month or two. And so I kind of found this. Um, it's very current. It's happening right now. It's super, super interesting. And it's looking really bright for the future of psychology. So the article title is The Replication Crisis Devastated Psychology. This group is looking to rebuild it. It was posted on Vox.com and, uh, with links to a whole bunch of different, um, research and and articles outside. But, uh, the article, the main article, the, was on vox.com in the science and health section. So the psychological science accelerator could be the future to the field around the globe. If they can sustain it, the article is written by Brian Resnick on, and then it was posted on April 7th, 2021. So like I said, very current, very, very happening right now. So, um, the article starts off. In 2017, the The great 2017 solar eclipse left Chris Cartier feeling, well, a little jealous. Cartier, like so many Americans, was awed by, awed by the whole country coming together to celebrate a force of nature. Cartier is a psychologist, and he also started to think how precise the eclipse forecast was. Astronomers knew, down to the second, when the moon would cross the path of the sun, where precisely its shadow would land and for how many seconds the sun would appear to be blocked out for those on the ground. Cartier's field, social psychology, just doesn't have that type of accuracy. Things are really messy, says Cartier, who is an associate professor at Ashland University in Ohio. Psychology is nowhere near being at the level of precision of astronomers and physicists. And um this is an interesting point i i think it's you know it's the unfortunate reality of social psychology you know just psychology the whole the 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 whole study in general right um but at the same time it's not how unfortunate really is it right to be i mean i think to be at the forefront of something to be right on the cusp of something as it's being you know, found out as it's being uh, discovered is, is huge. And that's something special, right? I mean, sure, it's been decades and decades. And looking back, it's like, you know, there is a wealth of psychological research and, and all this stuff. But I mean, in the scheme of life, and if you compare that to, have, you know, biological science and other things in the scheme of life, it's nothing. I mean, it's, it's such, it's, it's a scratch on the surface. And so obviously, I mean, obviously having a scientific accuracy. Is desired, right? That is what we want. That's why this is all happening. But it isn't going to just uh, happen by accident, right? It's not going to just um, happen by lackadaisical, you know, just going through the motions type of, type of science, right? Where we're just asking the questions that are simple. We're just doing the motions so that you know we can get the results that uh, we want, not necessarily results that are um, true, right? And so obviously uh, the desire for for scientific a- accuracy is there, which is why the this this project is being worked on so so heavily right now. And so Cartier goes on to say um, he goes on to ask the question of how how do we make psychology um, accurate. How do we make it so it's just as accurate as astronomy, as, as, f- you know, physics, as um, all of those? How do we make it so it's that pinpoint accurate, right? So he goes into, um, further into the article, it says, his idea was audacious. Psychologists all around the world working together to rigorously push the science forward. But it came, it. It quickly became real. The Psychological Science Accelerator was born in 2017. This year, the group published its first major paper on the snap judgments people make of others' faces, and it has several other exciting large-scale projects in the works. Its early success suggests the accelerator could be a model for the future of psychology if the scientists involved can sustain it. So, um, very interesting. I think this is Crucial. I mean, it's fascinating. They're getting so many different cultures with so many different diverse people and and different different methods of gathering data and different different um, backgrounds, different different educational backgrounds, and and all kind that of, who are all going to be asking different questions, right? They're getting all of these different people from all around the world, with all these different intricacies, and they're getting them to work together in unison, and and that would be you know, first off, that would be so, that'd be next to impossible, right? It's only possible through how globally connected we, we already are right now, but that right there in and of itself would be almost impossible. And so the fact that they're doing that and the fact that they're right now successfully and already have successfully done one research project and they're continuing to do more is, is really quite astounding, right? I mean, most of the time research is all completed, uh, just, by one institution by one university by you know one place and one location in the world and so the fact that this is being a globally connected research is is incredible and i think that's really what's going to help it become pinpoint accurate science right the science that we're trying to produce and and i think that's completely necessary so the article goes on the psychological science accelerator explained for the past 10 years, psychology has been struggling through what's called the replication crisis. In summary, about a decade ago, many scientists realized that their standard research methods were delivering them false, unreliable results. When many famous and textbook psychological studies were tested with more rigorous methods, many of them failed. Other results simply looked less impressive upon reinspection. As possible around 50% of the published psychological literature fails upon retesting, but no one knows precisely the extent of the instability of the foundations of psychological science. The realization provoked a painful period of introspection and revision. I, I can only imagine. I feel like, I mean, I'm not even, I don't, you know, I don't have a graduate degree in psychology. I'm not, uh... I wouldn't, I mean, I'm not a licensed therapist or a psychologist, um, practicing, you know, therapist or psychologist or anything like that. But even, even for me reading that was, um, you know, when I first read it it was just something to really think about something to realize that, you know, it's, it's almost uncomfortable, right? It was really weird to read this being, being such a huge lover of psychology. It's, it's almost uncomfortable To think that so much of what we, in the realm of psychology, all the big research studies that were completed in the 70s and 80s and all these things, a lot of this stuff, um, that's either, it's either slightly or completely insignificant. You know, and it's almost, like I said, a lot of cognitive dissonance and really uncomfortable to think that that's actually true and off and, and, to, to some degree, right. We don't want to go too far here. Of course. I mean, there is value in the studies of old, even, even if they, even if they're showing us, even if it's that they're showing us what not to do, right. Um, there is value in those. So we don't want to go too overboard in saying that the, the studies of old are worthless. We have to restart and all this stuff. We don't want to go too far, but it is really weird to think, uh, about how, what percentage of it is valuable, what what percentage of it is real, and what percentage of it is just you know, made up and uh, so the article goes on to talk about the uh, where, where the inspiration for the psychological science accelerator came from and um, most of it came from, you know giant, huge projects, global projects, the inspiration for this came from looking at those things, looking at those projects and understanding that, hold on at humans, we exist all over the planet, and so bringing them all together, bringing all of us together, and globalizing um, our research on our minds and our brains is is crucial, crucially important, right? We need to bring the world in on a smaller and closer scale. So the article then goes on. Um, There's an old model for conducting psychological research done in small labs run by one big name professor probing the brains of american college undergrads the incentives built into this model have favored publishing as many papers with positive results as possible those that show statistically significant results but not those that turned up to be (laughs) bupkis i love how they use bupkis in this anyway over rigorous inquiry this old model has produced a mountain of scientific literature but a lot of it has failed upon closer inspection. So again, this is, this is uh, just reiterating the fact that a lot we have so much to go off of. We have so much uh, literature and content, but there's just, you know, a lot of it is being found to be uh, kind of halfway there. And so um, I, I think it's interesting what it says here about incentives. And I think incentives are huge, especially for universities, which is where almost all of psychological research and everything is happening, right? It's where a lot of it is completed is at different universities around the world. And I think it's kind of hard to toe the line because you want to reward good, thorough research that's impactful and well done and all of that. But um, the scales can kind of tip and the reward can sort of overshadow the ambition for discovery, right? And, and, and I feel like that is what leads to like these half-baked results or results that are just not even, uh, not even necessarily true because they are uh, statistically insignificant. And so the, you know, they get warped and changed and, and tweaked and modified until they are significant, right? Um, and so anyway, it's a very, very interesting thing. And so incentives are good and bad, lots of pros and cons in them, right? Um, so then, anyway, the article goes on. Under this structure, researchers under the structure of ince- – you know, the incentive structure, the current structure, researchers had arguably too much freedom. Freedom to report positive findings but keep negative findings in a file drawer. To stop conducting an experiment as soon as desired results were obtained. To make a 100 predictions but only report the ones that panned out. That freedom That freedom led researchers, often unwittingly and without malicious intent – A lot of the practices were used to make best use of scant resources to flimsy results, right? Flimsy results, half-baked results. And I think this is a really important thing right here, where it says, often unwittingly and without malicious intent. Because I don't think any researcher um, that loves science and wants to see the growth of humanity is going to be purposefully, um, you know, unless they're some comic book villain, is going to be purposefully putting out research that is malicious, purposefully malicious, or, you know, there's research out there that's, that's point that, that kind of stands to make a point about something and, you know, whether or not that's true, that type of research is, uh, can be hailed as true or not is, you know, different conversation, but, um, most of the time I, I do, I agree with this. I think it would be unwittingly and without malicious intent. It's, it's, it's to hurry something up. It's to go faster. I mean, have you ever been working, doing something at your job that was official, you know, dealing with money, doing, you know, whatever it is, and you see something that was done completely wrong or with no attention to detail or just like maybe it was whatever the thing was, it wasn't done at all. I, I mean, have you ever had the idea while you're at work solidified so strongly in you that, oh, wait, I guess everybody really is human, right? Like even, even, I mean, I work, I work in the court system for my, for my day job and, and I enjoy it a lot, but there are a lot of official documents, a lot of official things happening there. And it's just interesting. Sometimes you think everything is down to a T and ones and zeros and done perfect, but there are times when things are just, you know, it's like, oh, everybody's human. Mistakes are made. And so, um, I think that plays a lot into, into this and, uh, into how, you know, the results of old have, have come about, you know, when you don't have those checks and balances in place. And so, anyway, the article further goes on. Cartier dreamed of a distributed lab network with researchers in outposts all around the world who could gather, who could work together democratically on choosing topics to study and and recruiting a truly global, diverse participant pool to use in experiments, they'd pre-register their study designs, meaning they'd promise to stick to a particular recipe in running and analyzing an experiment, which staves off the cherry-picking and p-hacking, a variety which is a variety of practices to get data to yield a false positive. That's what p-hacking is. Um, and that was rampant before, and all that was rampant before the replication crisis became apparent. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I could see this so clear in my mind, right? Like globalizing psychology would just, I don't know. I feel like that's the next step. That's, that's. I mean, one of the most important steps. I feel like that's so cool because, I mean, like I said earlier, we are all, we're all human and we exist all over the planet and there are so many commonalities between us. But since we exist everywhere and we're, we, culture and environment, all these things make us vary so much. And it makes us all actually, you know, while we have so much in common, we have, we have so much indifference and it make that makes us unique at the same time. And this global interlinked um, psychological research could really help paint that picture, right? Really help paint that picture a lot, a lot better than it is right now and, and help show people that we are so similar. You know, we aren't so different. We, we can get along and things like that. I mean, really, there's a lot of positive positive outcomes that can come from, from this. Um, so anyway, the, the article goes on. Today, the psychological science accelerator is made up of over 500 laboratories representing more than 1,000 researchers in 70 countries around the world. Very, okay. It says 500 labs, more than 1,000 researchers. huh So the interesting thing there is it's like two, two researchers per lab. No. <laughs> I wonder what constitutes a lab. I wonder if you can like sign up and just have, you know, like your, your office in a, I don't know. That's, that's fascinating. The article doesn't go too much into what it takes to, you know, sign on and be in it to like be in part of the program or part of the project. But, um, very interesting, very interesting. But, you know, the first study, they study they undertook, which I mentioned earlier, the first study they, they did was testing an influential theory of how we as humans make snap judgments about what people's faces look like, right? Um, And the article goes on to say that the theory is called the valence dominance model, and it suggests that we evaluate people's faces on two broad dimensions, how dominant their face appears and how generally negative or positive they seem. Most of the research done on this model has taken place in the US or Europe. So the accelerator simply wanted to know, does this model explain how people all around the world judge the faces of others? And I really like that they chose this, this study first because it's actually testing how well their own, um, you know, accelerator works, right? In and of, while testing the, the original, the original, um, Question, the original hypothesis about snap judgments in people's faces, right? So, uh, the goes on. The final paper included more than 11,000 participants in 41 countries, and there are 241 co authors listed on the paper. That is insane. Holy moly. <laughs> I have never, never, never seen a psychological study, peer reviewed psychological study that had that many participants in it ever. I mean, there might be, I'm sure there's, there, they exist and they're out there, but I, I have never seen one with that many. Usually 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 is a lot of people, right? Um, for a psychological study. And I think, I think that's insane. And 11,000 participants. I mean, that's, if we can globalize even more, look at how many, 11,000 is still not a lot compared to, you know, the billions that are walking on the planet, right? So if we can continue to do that, we can continue to get such deeper results that are globally applicable, right? I mean, 241 co-authors, that's like such a huge pool of like smart minds that are working on one thing. That's insane. And when you get that many people who are smart and motivated working on one thing towards one purpose, I mean, you can make anything happen. So the article goes on. Um, The results, broadly speaking, uh, this influential model replicates around the world but the accelerator also included a new type of analysis of the data which reveals some slight fissures outside of the western context this analysis finds there may be a third dimension that emerges cartier says suggesting suggesting an interesting way People around the world might vary in how they perceive faces. In other world regions, people just don't really seem to have a good agreement about who looks dominant and who doesn't. Cartier says, "It's a wrinkle that would ha- wouldn't have arisen if this collaboration had only been conducted in the United States or Europe." And and so, while I'm not pouring into the re- their research on the faces and 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 the perception of that, I'm looking more at the the accelerator right. Um, I do think it's really cool here because it's talking, it makes a good point that there is so much research that has been conducted and completed on, you know, on U S soil, on European soil, just, um, just with males, just with white people, just with um, people who are middle class or upper class or whatever your socioeconomic status is. Um, you know, just in that subgroup, there's so many different little, little intricacies that have, that were not necessarily taken into full context, especially when we're just testing a lot of, you know, American undergrads at college. that's, that's so specific. You're looking at people who are in the middle or upper class because they're in college. You're looking at people who are, um, who are wanting to be in school. Um, you're looking at people, I don't know the the percentages of male to female in colleges right now, but there's a lot of, of predetermined factors that go into that subset of people, right? So it's really interesting. And then this is, this would really help to just obliterate that, make it so that this type of research can happen everywhere. We can get way fuller picture. So further on, um, they go on to you know explain how there was a tension between some of the scientists on how to proceed once the results started rolling in um, for this for the the face perception research and the researchers and the reason why is the researchers actually have to pre-register their experiment design for when they're working with the accelerator effectively locking in their procedure right they're not allowed once they have their experiment design solidify they are not allowed to tweak it at all halfway through not at all and so which is good because it helps them keep it consistent right it's the same throughout right they're not allowed to just change things as they see fit as they move through the research however there were some who are frustrated with that Uh, that they couldn't tweak things because, and and this is the, a quote from one of those who were frustrated. I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting. He says, imagine you're a brain surgeon and you pre-register all of your steps for your brain surgery, right? And then you started poking in your, in the brain of your patients. And you said, oops, if I don't do this and change this right now, you're going, the patient's going to die, would you change the procedures then? And so it's kind of an extreme example, but it's, it's pretty apt, I think. And it's saying that sometimes once results start rolling in, you realize, Oh, this part of the question of this hypothesis is actually pointless or needs a revision or needs more specification. And so there is kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a line once again, that has to be towed there. Um, but for this specific one, they actually had a, a ruling on it. They had people, like I said, you know, like they said earlier, democratically come together, decide, okay, are we going to allow them to tweak things or are we not? And they ended up deciding, you know, no, we're going to stick to what we originally said where there isn't going to be, you know, you have to pre-register your design. There is no tweaking of things. And, and that's, even right there, even the fact that they mediated that dispute and adjudicated it like that, I think that right there shows something very promising, right? Instead of just one guy making decision, making a decision to, yeah, we need to change this. Yep. We need to change. this. just the head scientist guy, right? Oh, we need to flip this around, change the group, whatever, ask a different question so that it sounds better, whatever it is, right? Instead of that, it's actually a democratic process where everybody's coming together saying, all right, you know, here's our dispute. Here's our issue. Let's adjudicate it in a way that seems fit. And I think that's super, super powerful and a super, you know, important thing to have, especially when it comes to psychological research and us being on, you know, the more infant side of it right now. So wrapping it up, the accelerator's plans for the future and what could get in the way. The article goes on. So far, the accelerator has only published the face perception research but there are more projects in the works in light of the pandemic the participants have turned their global network to studying coping mechanisms during stressful times for example one research effort is testing out if a technique used to reduce stress and anxiety called cognitive repraisal works around the world additionally the group is looking into whether studies on how people answer the philosophical trolley problem replicate around the world and how gender prejudice rears its head globally Beyond individual studies and replications, the team also hopes to generate lots of good scientifically sound psychological data on people around the world for other researchers to use as a reference. So this is cool. I mean, I like to just give us a little touch, just a little tidbit of what, what's to come in the future. Um, but I, it's exciting. I mean, the trolley problem is fascinating. and And being able to see how other cultures and just other groups of people kind of, um, what they value through how they they handle things like that is going to be so fascinating right how they value relationships and and family members and friends and and how all that transcends into their their work life and and their, their you know everything and so I think ugh, I'm just I'm just excited I think it's so interesting um but you know the article that tor- towards the end here um, just a couple more paragraphs it, it talks about here Um it says Under the current status quo, researchers get ahead and make progress in their careers by being the primary author of a big idea study, not by being one of hundreds of authors playing a bit role in a huge project. Now, that is also a very interesting thing. Um, very interesting point. And maybe we have to change the way we value or look at uh, achievement and like the achievement of researchers, right? Um, I mean, you might be one in 300 people on a pro, on a paper. And obviously, if that's the case, you know, whatever you contribute, it, if you want to be, sta- you know, a standout, then you, it, it better be significant right i would think so i'm sure it's not 300 people on the research and each of them contributed the exact same amount that's not how group projects typically work but um all the same there is i feel like you know there definitely would need to be a shift in the way that we view the achievement of researchers in that way if that's what we're if if we're going to move towards a a a model where we have you know two to three hundred people being the authors on these types of peer-reviewed research right so anyway, the article then goes on. Its members are also largely volunteers and mostly from North America and Europe. We want it to, we want it to be much more diverse and we're still struggling with that, says Dana Baznight Brown, a cognitive psychologist at the United States Interna- International University, Africa in Nairobi, Kenya. We we certainly do have members in South America, Southeast Asia has a quite vibrant community and we have lots of individuals in, from Indonesia, Philippines, Taiwan, but in Africa, there's a very low representation, and I think this is going to be one of the first problems, or the biggest problem, probably is just getting people on board with it. Just getting people to understand what the goal is and and, and understand how uh, important the globalization of this is, right? And especially when it's a volunteer basis, all right. A lot of them it is volunteer, and helping helping somebody to see that vision is going to be easily the the, the most difficult part. I suppose easily isn't the correct adjective to use there, but we'll go with it. Um, Anyway, so it goes on. Psychology matters and getting it right matters because this is the science of the human experience. Cartier says, if you can just marginally improve the way we collect and analyze our data and draw conclusions from them, there are untold future human beings that can benefit from that tiny advance. Good science is a gift that we give to the future today we have the gift of eclipse predictions from scientists of the past we don't yet know what specific gifts a more a more scientifically sound and globally equitable field of psychology could give us but whatever they might be they now have the potential to be durable and powerful for the entire world i love i love that quote uh, good science is a gift we give to the future And I think that's, I think that's one of the most important things when it comes to science. It's, it's easy for, um, I mean, as we've seen in some of the science of the past, uh, in the psychology field, it's easy for the, um, the sacrifice of the future to be lost for the, you know, the gains of the present when it comes to like incentives, like we were talking about. And, um, there really does need to be a, a selfless uh, mindset when it comes to doing this type of psychological research, I think. Right. And so all of this is, I don't know, to me, it's just all so exciting because we might be able to really uncover some like seriously transmutable behaviors and ideas and, and, and stuff in, like into our own lives once it's all said and done and, and just get a constant stream of like really deep and impactful information. Right. The mind is endless, and humans are so, are so unique. And and reevaluating research and moving forward with the right questions in mind, and more importantly, the right motivations, like at heart, is going to be super super crucial in the success of this project. Because when it comes to this stuff, it's not just ones and zeros. It's, it's we're trying to boil it down to something as simple as that. That is the goal, um, and something exact as that but it's not perfect and right out of the gate it's 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 and it it never will be perfect but it's it's the goal right and and it's really confusing but but and, and you know a lot of times not all of it fits the right way and i mean it's psychology it's weird but you know the goal is to get it down to those that pinpoint accuracy or at least as close as we can get it to that point right um and so my hope is that this this project is going to be a big step in the right direction towards serious discovery, serious deep, meaningful and impactful discovery in the in the field of psychology. So anyway, I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up. I know this episode went a little longer than uh than normal. Um and uh but yeah, if you've enjoyed listening, be sure to follow letter on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. Remember that you can check out my blog other projects that I'm working on over at cashleman.com I also have a Patreon page where I have details about services I offer in editing, tutoring, mentoring, most of that stuff is in regards to English and writing um, organizational methods and things like that, but there are other things as well and as I've said, all of this info can be found on my website, cashleman.com you can follow me as well uh, on just social media stuff at cashleman just at c-a-s-h-l-i-m-a-n so thank you so much, so, so, so much for tuning in. I really, really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if there's something cool that you heard on this week's episode uh, or something that kind of fired you up about this because it's super interesting and exciting, let me know. Be sure to comment wherever, whether it be on social media, the blog, um, or wherever, or in Discord and uh, spark up a conversation about it. But uh, I hope you guys have an awesome week and I will see you next time on Letter.